This morning, excuse me, I'll turn this down a little. We've been adjusting the sound system back and forth to work with various items and try and get that at a good spot. We did view a Sunday school lesson in which we consider the doctrine of the Trinity. And at the end of that lesson, we said amen to the fact that there are complexities in God's nature and character which are a mystery to us. That God is so great, so glorious, beyond our comprehension, that we are to bow in worship, recognizing that we cannot fully grasp who He is and that that is a glorious truth, not something to cause us to doubt. Well, when we consider the subject of prayer, and when we consider the subject from our text today, Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13, We're also going to bump up here against the mystery. You know, there are mysteries in the Christian faith, such as the sovereignty of God, how is God absolutely sovereign in control of all details, and then our responsibility. How are we responsible for our actions? We're going to bump up into one of those mysteries regarding the subject of prayer today. Up to this point in Luke chapter 11, we have seen that Jesus was praying and there was a disciple watching Jesus pray. And when Jesus finished, the disciple asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And then we have what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer, but could better be called the model prayer, where Jesus teaches how to pray. And what we have looked at is that in the midst of that prayer we see that Jesus teaches us that we're to pray to our Father who is in heaven. He teaches us that we are to pray with the community of Christ, the body of Christ in mind, because he says, our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. We have those second person plural pronouns there. So we are to pray thinking about other believers and praying for them as well as our own needs. And then we also saw that we're to pray for both God things and people things. We see this divided up that we have, that we are to pray that God's name be hallowed. We're to pray that God's will be done, that His kingdom come, but then also we're to pray for our daily bread. We're to pray that God forgive us of our sins and that God not lead us into temptation. So both God things and people things. Then we also saw Jesus give a, a parable illustrating confident boldness and persistence in prayer when He talks about this friend And he asked this question in verse 5, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey. I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut. And my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. Jesus is saying, Which one of you has a friend like that? And the answer expected is, Well, no, I don't. My friends, one who is truly my friend, will get up and will give me the bread. 
And he says, I say to you, though he will not rise and give because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Harking back to that illustration. The contrast there then is, if this guy who is grumpy and doesn't want to open the door in the middle of the night will ultimately get up because of the boldness of this person coming and knocking on the door at midnight and that person's persistence in doing that, how much more will God answer the prayers of his own dear children? And so we pick up then with verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So the basic summary of this segment in 9 through 13 is that God loves to give good gifts to those who pray persistently with humble boldness. And then we see the particular gift of the Holy Spirit mentioned here. When he says, how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So let's uh, dig into this together and unpack this text and see what we learn about prayer from it. Verse 9, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be open. These three instructions that we find in this particular segment, 9 and 10, tie in with the parable that has just been given. And then they also tie in with the model prayer that we saw previously. Notice the man in the parable asked for bread. He sought out his friend. He knocked on the door. So Jesus here is saying, I say to you, seek, you will find, knock, it will be open. Ask, it will be given. Likewise then, Jesus is saying, we are to ask of God. We're to seek him out. We're to knock on heaven's door, bringing our petitions before the Father. That's the point Jesus is making here. In the Greek text in this particular segment, we have some present imperative forms. Those indicate a constant asking, a constant action. So when Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you, He's not just saying, just ask one time, and that's it. You never have to ask again. It is a constant action. Ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. It's indicating a persistence. Not just the one time tossing up a prayer and asking, but being willing to ask again and again from the Heavenly Father. 
What do we also see here? That contrasted with the cranky friend in the parable, you know, the guy who says, my kids are here in bed, you know, I can't get up, you know, wake them up, that kind of thing. Contrasted with the cranky friend in the parable, God wants us to ask him for good gifts. God delights in opening the doors of heaven and pouring out good gifts upon his children. He wants us to ask. He wants us to seek Him. He wants us to knock. He wants us to seek Him out when we or others are needy. He wants us to confidently and persistently knock on the door of heaven, petitioning Him to make His name holy, to bring His kingdom, to do His will, to give us this day our daily bread, to forgive us of our sins. And to lead us not into temptation. Tying that back in with the model prayer. Jesus is teaching us here that God is the King of Heaven and He loves to lavish good gifts upon His children. He delights in pouring out good gifts upon His children. What does it tell us in the book of James? Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. All good gifts come down from our Father in heaven, and he loves to pour blessings upon his children. I want us to also notice something else here. I've mentioned this before, We can call it the divine passive voice. You know, there's active voice in grammar when you're writing things out. There's passive voice. We have in the scriptures divine passive voice here two times. Notice this in verse 9. I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. It will be given to you. This is called divine passive voice when it says it will be given to you because who is the one that will give it? God, right? It's saying ask and it will be given to you by God. Then we have more of an active voice. Seek here and you will find. Then again the divine passive knock and it will be opened to you. Opened by whom? Opened by God himself. So we see here that God is the one that is providing these things in this instance. God loves, he loves to pour gifts upon his children. Notice also that there's a promise here, isn't there? What does it say? Ask, seek, and knock, and it will be given. You will find it will be opened. This is a promise. It is a promise. Now, we've encountered many promises in the statements of Jesus. It is true that oftentimes Jesus spoke proverbially. He made general statements that are not to be taken categorically in the sense of anytime you ask, no matter what you ask for, God is going to give it to you. Okay, Jesus isn't saying that. And we're going to look at some instances in Scripture 
where particular things even that we can do can affect whether or not God is going to be willing to give unto us, okay? So, Jesus is speaking proverbially, though, but the point we need to understand here from this is that God loves to bless his children. He loves to give us good gifts. When I talk about good gifts, I'm not, and I'll qualify this again, I'm not talking about a big house and a nice car, okay? Although he may love to give you that. But there are many, many good gifts in the scriptures. Those spiritual gifts, those heavenly gifts. The fruit of the Spirit. Are those good gifts? We'll look at some of those things as we go along. But don't miss the emphasis here. God loves to bless His children. He loves to bless His children. There's an emphasis here on God's generosity. His love of answering our confident and fervent prayers. And you know, far from being annoyed if we constantly and consistently come and pour our petitions out before Him, God delights in it when we come to Him and ask Him. He delights in it. Because, for one thing, His very nature is a nature of generosity. There's a verse that we all know that emphasizes the incredible generosity of God. For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave. What did He give? His own Son. What incredible generosity. He loves to answer our prayers. He delights in it when we come and we consistently and persistently pour out our petitions before Him. Think about it this way. God receives glory when we so strongly believe that He can answer our prayers that we knock on the door of heaven with our petitions over and over again. That glorifies God. Let's use an earthly illustration. Which earthly doctor do you think would receive more glory? A cranky, unskilled physician who rarely has anybody ever come ask him for help? Or a generous and a highly skilled physician who constantly has people coming to him and begging and pleading with him? to take them and to help them. Which do you think receives the most glory? So how are we to give glory to God in this? By asking. (laughs) By seeking. By knocking. We give glory to God when we do so. Now, as we notice here, The words of Jesus appear to be a categorical promise. Ask, and it will be given to you. Right? But I want us to notice something from the rest of the text. Notice that Jesus does not say, Ask God for bread, and God will give you bread. You notice that? Look down a little bit farther there. Verses 11 through 13. 
If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, notice this. In this illustration, Jesus says, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Does he say, if a son comes to you and asks for bread, is there any father among you that won't give him bread? Is that what Jesus says? He doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? He says, well, he's not going to give a stone. He comes asking for something that is good and useful. He's not going to give something that's totally useless. How much more your Heavenly Father? So, it's not an absolute promise here that God's going to give us specifically what we're asking for. Not from this text. Now, there are promises like that in Scripture. You know what? There are things that you can ask for that God absolutely promises you that He will give you every time. It's not any brand name of car. But wisdom would fit there. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives unto all liberally without reproach, and it will be given. Notice that? So yeah, there's some things that are promised to you. But we shouldn't think from this that God's going to give us, because of this passage, that God is going to give us absolutely everything that we ask for. Okay? But again, what's the emphasis here? Over and over again, let's not miss this. Okay? I don't want us to miss this. As I correct errors that are out there, I don't want us to miss this glorious truth that God loves to pour gifts upon His children. And that's the emphasis of this passage. God loves to bless His children. He loves to answer prayer. And He is glorified when we persistently and consistently bring our petitions before Him. We're to keep doing these things for His glory. Notice from that though, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will you give him a stone? Or ask for a fish, will you give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, will you offer him a scorpion? What's this saying? God is not going to give us that which is useless or ultimately spiritually harmful to our souls. He's not going to do that. He gives an illustration here of a parent. And he's saying, you know, which, which parent, which father of you is going to give something useless or harmful to their child? Well, if you guys, and he's arguing from the lesser to the greater here, if you guys who are evil, you have sin that has flooded your beings, if you guys who are evil are going to give good gifts, to your children, how much more the Heavenly Father to those who ask Him for the Holy Spirit. You know, for us, our kid may ask for a drink of Kool-Aid and we may say, huh, buddy, but here's some pure water. But we're probably not going to give him Kool-Aid laced with phenobarbital, are we? We're not going to give something harmful or worthless. And if we being evil 
treat our children well, how much more of the Heavenly Father? That's what Jesus is saying here. Well, what is it that God specifically reveals to us in this text the words of Jesus that is given when asked for the gift of the Holy Spirit, it says here. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, there could be some debate about what exactly that means. I don't tend to think that this is talking about the receiving of the Holy Spirit that happens upon salvation. Okay? Yes, biblically speaking, all those who are in Christ Jesus have the Holy Spirit. It says in Romans, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Okay? If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and empowering you. I don't think it's speaking about that. I really don't think that it's speaking about some type of second blessing of the Holy Spirit here. Particularly, I believe this is speaking about the empowering of the Holy Spirit being given to empower us to bear good fruit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking still particularly here to his disciples, isn't he? Jesus is. He's teaching his disciples how to pray. So I think that this is speaking about the empowering of the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to bear good fruit. Look over at Galatians chapter 5. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Or the fruit of the Spirit, singular there. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. There's no law against these. You want to know something to pray for? There's a good list, isn't it? Pray that God would help you to be a loving person by the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray for joy in the Holy Spirit. Pray for peacefulness, that you would be a peace-loving and a peace-promoting person. Pray that the Holy Spirit would empower you to be long-suffering, to be patient. God loves to pour those gifts out upon His children when they pray. Have you prayed for any of those lately? If you want to pray within the will of God, here's one way that you can do it. And you can know that you're praying within the will of God. Pray for yourself and for other believers to be given empowerment by the Holy Spirit to bear the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Okay. It gets a little complicated in some ways from here on. I do want us to consider now some reasons for not getting what we desire when we pray to God. I want to look at one passage in particular which points out to us three particular hindrances to prayer and God answering our prayers in particular. And that's James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 
James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And we'll see from this passage some particular reasons why people sometimes do not get what they ask from God. And I've titled those Unholy Hedonism. I'll explain what that means. Unholy Hedonism is one reason. Presumptuous Pride is another. And Functional Fatalism is a third. We'll see if we can understand these from the text. Unholy Hedonism, Presumptuous Pride, and Functional Fatalism. Notice beginning in verse 1, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay, could you see any of those three in there? <laughs> Unholy hedonism, presumptuous pride, functional fatalism. Well, let's search a little bit and I'll explain some of those big words there. And I'm not going to do it specifically in the order listed in the text because there's one that I want to focus in on because I think, and I'm going to say in my own life, but I think probably in sovereign grace circles there is one of these that we fall into the most. And I want to emphasize that one and I'll save it for last, okay? I'll be preaching to myself primarily in this sermon. So first of all, let's look at unholy hedonism. Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. That's an unholy hedonism. What is hedonism? Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure. Hedonism is making it as a primary goal in your life, pursuing pleasure. Now, I'm saying unholy hedonism because this is in contrast to what John Piper would call Christian hedonism, which is more of a holy view of hedonism, namely that we Christians should pursue joy in God. We should delight in God. We are sinning if we are not pursuing joy and delight in God. Okay? That would be a holy form of hedonism because the object of our pleasure is God himself. But this is talking about an unholy hedonism. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You're doing it out of a sensuality. You just want to get what you want because it's going to make you feel good. End of story. And it's saying that's a hindrance to getting what you pray for, right? 
you ask and do not receive, do not receive from whom? From God. Implied there again. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Unholy hedonism is living for private, individual pleasure. And it may even be, you may even be pursuing your private pleasure in things that are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves, right? An unholy hedonist might be one who spends much of his time on the golf course. Is it sinful to go play golf? Of course it's not sinful to go play golf. Can it be absolutely righteous and beneficial to go play golf? Yes, it can. If you're the kind of person that gets wound so tight you've got to go out and hit something to unwind, yeah. Can it turn into a sinful thing if you're the type of person that gets really teed off if you shank one into the woods and then you throw your club? Yes. <laughs> you know, then it can become a sinful thing. Okay, Golf in and of itself isn't sinful, but if somebody spends all of their time pursuing golf and that is their ultimate pleasure and they're praying and praying unto God to make them the best golfer in the world and to you know, cause the sun to shine so that they can go out and play golf and da 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 God might send a rainstorm so they can't go play golf. Or it might cause them to pull a hamstring, you know? You ask and do not receive because you ask and miss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Okay, now I'm going to warn us about a false doctrine here. An example of this is in the name it and claim it movement. That's an example of doing this exact thing. Lord, I want a Bentley. And you say to ask, you say to seek, you say to knock persistently and fervently enough and I'm going to do that with enough faith and I know, oh God, that you want to give me this $300,000 luxury car. But you know what? Somebody would be hard-pressed and it's about impossible to find a biblical, reasonable, unselfish reason for asking God for a $300,000 luxury car. They're asking to spend it on their pleasures. In most cases. I know we're talking about motivation of the heart here. So, think about this for a moment. If they get the car, who gave it to them? Or for what reason is it being given to them? I'll let you think about that. But what about us? We might say, oh, well, I haven't fallen into that idea that, you know, God wants me to be filthy rich and he wants me to have my neighbor's house over there, so I'm going to pray with enough faith and he's got to give it to me. Oh, I haven't fallen into that. But are there ways that we can fall into unholy hedonism? Oh, yeah, there are. So I want to give us a tool here, a couple of diagnostic questions. Kind of like an angiogram here, okay? Going to give us some tools to do self-angiograms. We need to find an artery or a vein. Somebody out there, help me out. Where does an angiogram go? Is it an artery or a vein? I don't even know. An artery? Okay, thank you. 
we need to find an artery and insert these questions in to see if we've got any blockages, any unholy hedonism. Here's the first diagnostic question. Ask ourselves, if we're praying unto God, why do I want this? Remember this morning, if you were here, I talked about the desire to pray that we as Christians would get to the heart of the matter and know the reasons that we do things? Here's a diagnostic question. Ask yourself, why do I want this particular request, this particular thing that I'm asking from God? If you can't find a biblical, a righteous, and a kingdom of God promoting and God glorifying reason for asking for it, then you're asking to spend it on your own pleasures. So ask yourself, why do I want this? And it may even be, again, it may even be that you would like for a nice day to go out and play golf because you need a chance to relax. Because you need the fresh air and the exercise. Okay? But you may have a wrong reason or a right reason for wanting to do that. And so this is a good diagnostic question. Ask yourself, why do I want this thing from God? Here's another diagnostic. Try and diagnose your attitude. Your attitude. Here's some attitudes we should have. One, we should have holy discontentment with falling short of God's written will. We should have a holy discontentment when we fall short of seeing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Shouldn't we? Should we be, should we be happy to say, oh, well, I don't see myself displaying godly love, but I'm content with that. No. There should be holy discontentment within us. If we do not see that we're displaying love, joy, peace, long-suffering. And so we need to be asking God, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, work in me to display the fruits of the Spirit. But another diagnostic tool is that we should have a holy contentment with God's sovereign will. We can know if we're praying to heap it upon our own pleasures, if when we don't get what we're asking for, we are discontent with God's sovereign will in our lives. Okay, you see the difference there between a holy discontentment. There we're asking for something we know is God's will for us because it's in His revealed will in the Scriptures. It is God's will for us to be loving, to be joyful, to be peaceful, to be kind, to be long-suffering. We should have a holy discontentment if we don't see those things in our lives and we should be praying and asking. But if we're praying for something that is not in God's revealed will within the Word, such as, let's take for instance, the healing of a loved one. If God chooses not to heal that loved one and we fall into sinful discontentment as a result, then it shows that we were asking this for our own desires, not out of a righteous motivation or an attitude toward God. We are to always be content with God's sovereign will in our lives. 
If we're not, we just make ourselves miserable. And we don't bring glory to God. So there's that first one, unholy hedonism. Did you see the presumptuous pride also mentioned there? What did it say in verse 6? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Diagnostic, look at your own heart. Are you praying out of pride? Are you praying as a proud, boastful person? Don't expect God to answer your prayers. Just because a person prays a lot doesn't make them a godly person. And it doesn't mean they're going to have a lot of answered prayer requests. Right? I heard an example that was discouraging to me. I was listening to Dr. James Dobson's new radio program, Family Talk. He had Annie Chapman as a guest, wife of Stephen Curtis Chapman. She'd written a book, and in this book she gave a testimony of a woman whose mother-in-law was just, she said, always just hateful, hateful, hateful toward her and toward other people, just a hateful person. But then she said after this woman died, that woman had an accident, she stepped and slipped and fell and hit her head. After she died, they went into her house and they saw pasted all over the house post-it notes that said things like pray for so-and-so and pray for so-and-so and pray for such-and-such person and pray for such-and-such person. Their analysis then of that, Annie Chapman and Dr. Dobson at least tacitly acknowledged it, was that this was an incredibly gracious, kind loving woman ultimately because she wanted to pray for all these people. And then the daughter-in-law said, well, I am so glad, so glad that I did not ever confront my mother-in-law because I found out what a good person she really was at heart even though she acted outwardly so evilly towards me so consistently. But does just simply praying make someone a good person? If someone is not displaying the fruits of the Spirit, are they a good person because they pray? I mean, you could pray 24 hours a day until you starve to death. And you would still be a hypocrite and an evil person. Presumptuous pride hinders prayers. God says in the psalm, it says in the psalms, the psalmist says that if I had acknowledged iniquity within my heart, O Lord, you would not hear me. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Okay, one more thing in this text then. The unholy hedonism, the presumptuous pride, but then notice also what we'll call a functional fatalism. And here's the one where I want to specifically preach to myself and I want to specifically preach to us sovereign gracers. People who believe in the ultimate sovereignty of God. What does it say in verse 2? You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. 
one of the reasons that we might not ask is because in our practice, in our function, we are really fatalists. What is a fatalist? Fatalist is somebody who comes along with, who has a Doris Day, case of whatever will be, will be. The future is not ours to see. Case of A fatalist is one who believes that everything is locked into place, that nothing can alter the future, so ultimately it doesn't matter what anybody does. That's fatalism. Fatalism is the response that things are decreed or they are put into place. Those things cannot be changed, so I'm just going to do whatever I do, and if I do poorly, if I sin, well, that was just decreed, so it doesn't make any difference. Or, if somebody gets hurt, well, that was just all part of the plan, so it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. That's the idea of fatalism. Now, notice the implication of this text. It says, you do not have because you do not ask. What's the implication there? If you ask, you would have. That's the implication there. You don't have because you don't ask. If you did ask, though, God would have given it to you. But we contend toward functional fatalism. We believe that God is sovereign over all things. I believe that. God is sovereign. There's nothing that happens that is outside of His sovereign decree and His sovereign will. He is sovereign. It says in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none like me. I am God, I have declared the things past from the things that are to come. And he says, I will do all my good pleasure. He says, I declared it. God is sovereign. But we can become functional fatalists when it comes to prayer. Now, those of us who believe in the sovereignty of God, we're generally pretty careful to avoid this functional fatalism in a couple areas. I, I know that I am. One of those areas is saying, well, God is sovereign, so it doesn't matter if I sin. We can be pretty good at avoiding that. I hope you're good at avoiding that, because that's a heresy. Should we sin the grace abounds? God forbid. You say, why does he yet find fault? You, to reform, will you say to the one who formed you, why have you made me this way? Now the scriptures give an answer for that. We're pretty good at avoiding that, I hope. You know, we're also pretty good as sovereign racers at avoiding the functional fatalism of saying we shouldn't evangelize because God's going to save his elect anyway. I hope you're good at avoiding that. Because that's a flat heresy, again. That God has decreed it also. It doesn't make any difference what we do, so we can just sit back. How shall they hear without a preacher? God has decreed the end and the means to accomplish that end. But here we go. Now let's talk about functional fatalism in prayer. And dig deep with me for a minute. Dig deep into your own heart. Do you ever find yourself thinking 
God is going to do what he is going to do regardless of whether I pray. So it really doesn't make any difference. <coughs> you, you may say, well, no, I've never, I've never thought that. I've never put it into those kind of words. Well, I'm glad to hear that. That means you are constantly knocking on the door of heaven and asking God for good gifts. I have to admit, I fall into this functional fatalism regarding prayer. And I've talked to other people who were raised in Sovereign Grace Church and they've said the same thing. When it comes to prayer, they don't really believe that God responds to our prayers and that it makes a difference whether we pray at times. There have been times where I have not believed that. And so, what is the cop-out? I say, I'll pray, Lord, if your will be done. And that's my cop-out. Should I pray, Lord, your will be done? Absolutely. But it can be a cop-out because deep in my heart I'm believing, God, you're going to either heal this person or you're not going to heal them. And it doesn't really make any difference whether I pray. I'm not going to change your mind. Consider the implication of this text again. You do not have because you do not ask. Implication, if you had asked, you would have. So here's the issue. In God's sovereignty, does God genuinely, sincerely, does he really respond to human events? Or is he going to do what he's going to do regardless of what anyone else does? Does God genuinely respond to human actions? This text implies that he absolutely does. That if you would have prayed, you would have received. We talk about Trinity and you hit a place where it's a mystery, it's a paradox. You want another one? Here you go, right here. But think about this for a minute. Let's look at a couple Old Testament passages. Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. And I would, I would suggest this. If you don't really think that God responds, genuinely responds to human responses, then you're a functional fatalist when it comes to prayer. You may have been thinking, oh, well, I never actually think that when I talked about it before. But here's a diagnostic tool. If you don't really believe that God genuinely responds and therefore He's going to do what He's going to do regardless of how you pray, then you are a functional fatalist just as much as if you're saying it doesn't matter if I sin or if you say God's going to save His elect so it doesn't matter if I evangelize. They're all in the same category. But look at this for a moment. Exodus 32, 1-14. And I said it, uh, I'm preaching to myself here. I've fallen into this even this week. I have thought this. Exodus 32. Moses is up on the mountain. He's delayed. Remember, he comes down 
The people are worshipping a golden calf. And then in verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, Go get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Was God just joking there with Moses? Then what did Moses do? He prayed. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountain, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Did God genuinely respond there? I think he did. He genuinely responded there to the prayer of Moses. Again, mystery, sovereign decree of God, God's response. But we don't struggle so much with the mystery of how is it that God is going to save his elect, but yet if I don't pray for this person to go out and preach to them, they're not going to be saved. If they don't hear the gospel, they won't be saved. We don't struggle with that one quite as much. In my experience, okay, I struggle more with this idea regarding prayer. But again, I think that God genuinely responds to human actions. Another example would be Jonah and Nineveh. Remember, God said, 40 days, I am going to wipe out this city. What happened? The people repented. They humbled themselves before God in sackcloth and ashes. Did God wipe out that city? No, he didn't. He spared them. Did God genuinely respond to human actions there? Absolutely. <laughs> in God's decree, he said, if they respond, I will act in this way. God genuinely responds. What does that mean for us? If we don't ask, we won't receive. What is the emphasis of the text in Luke again? God loves to pour good gifts upon His children. He loves for His children to ask for good gifts. He loves for His children, as it tells us in James again, we don't have to turn there, of James 5, 13-18 to pray fervently. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. But then do you know the example that comes after that? What example of prayer is given after that? It says, Elijah is a man like we are and he prayed that it would not rain and it did not rain. 
His fervent prayers accomplished much. And he was granted his request because there's a God in heaven who loves to glorify himself and be glorified in answering the prayers of his people. This is glorious. This is glorious. So do you ever find your time find times where you just find that you're not asking God? You know, where you've really just sat down and thought about it? You know what? I haven't really asked God. I haven't really sought. I haven't really knocked much at all. Here's a question to ask yourself. Am I a functional fatalist? Is the reason I'm not asking because I don't really believe it makes any difference? If we don't really believe it makes any difference, why would we ask? Right? But if we really believe it will make a difference, will we not ask? If the person you love most in this entire world is dying from a, from a grave disease, but there is one doctor out there in this entire world who has success in treating that condition, will you not move heaven and earth to ask that doctor to heal your loved one? Why? Because you believe that they can and that they might do it for you. If you don't ask, it may be because you don't really believe that they can do it. And that's often the way it is with us and God. Okay, I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb here. You know that little slogan that prayer changes things? I've seen software and gracers get really mad over that. How do you think that fits in light of our text today? Can prayer change things? Can prayer affect the way God will respond toward us? Yes. Yes. That's what this text is saying. (laughs) And should we always pray for God's will? Yes, we should. (laughs) What do the scriptures say? If we pray according to his will, that he will hear us. He will respond to us. As I mentioned, there are things that are promised. Pray for wisdom. God will give you wisdom. If you sincerely ask God for wisdom, He will give it to you. He has promised that He will give it to you. But there are also things that God sovereignly desires in His great pleasure of giving good gifts to His children, which may be the healing of a loved one. It may be the providing of a financial need. And God may be actually saying to us through this text, Yes, I am sovereign. Yes, I ordain the means as well as the ends. But my child, if you ask, you will receive. But if you don't ask... In this instance, you will not receive. It's up to you. Let's pray.
Father, thank you that you love to pour good gifts upon your children. Thank you that you genuinely respond to our prayers. We pray, Father, that you would help us not to be functional fatalists when we pray. May we recognize that there are certain situations where if we ask, we will receive, but if we do not ask, we will not receive. And so may we glorify you as our Lord Jesus glorified you. Because how did this all start in this text? It was Jesus praying unto you and a disciple watching him pray. And then saying, teach me to pray like that. But may you help us also not to be unholy hedonists. Or to be consumed with presumptuous pride. But Father, what a glorious truth that you love to give good gifts to your children. So may we ask. May we ask fervently. But then may we be content with your sovereign will. If you choose to heal, may we praise you and rejoice in that. If you choose not to heal, may we be content in your sovereign will. But keep us from error, Father. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.